gospel according to the good Dr. Luke. As you know, we've slowed down a little bit. We've hit what we call a little believer's bottleneck. There's some real important, not that everything isn't important, but right now we've, we've slowed down. We've shortened up the passages to look at because there's so much that's happening here. This is called the first passion prediction. We've talked about that. You know what that means. But it's instructive on where it comes. It comes at a very strange time in the Gospel of Luke. And you'll see this a few more times. So we're, gonna, this is just a, we're just going to touch on it today. Because we're going to be back in another passion prediction later in chapter 9. And that's going to come on the heels of the transfiguration and the healing of the demon-possessed boy. And then we'll have another passion prediction in chapter 18. And that'll come on the heels of the narrative with the rich young ruler. So this comes up three times here in Luke's gospel. And we'll touch on it today. But it's really instructive. This is coming on the heels of that great question. Who do you say that I am? It's a powerful question. It's the most important question in the world. Everyone eventually will have to answer it. Far better to answer it accurately on this side of the grave than the other. Remember, the Bible promises what? It is appointed unto man once to die and then the... That's the truth. You don't get a second shot at this. You don't get a third or fourth. There's no holding pen for you to get in there and get it right. This is it. You got a one-shot deal here. And that's why you never see on those hearse, you don't see luggage racks on top and you don't see them pulling a... U-Haul trailer, you're not coming back. So this is it. you got to get it right the first time. And Jesus asked that question then, and he asked it today. Who do you? You have to answer it in. Who do you say that I am? He says, who do you say that I am? The crowd said all sorts of things, but he needed to know. They knew who he was, but they didn't understand deeply what it meant, and that's what we're going to unpack today. And we'll do more when we get to another confession a little later on. First passion prediction. Luke 9, 21 to 22, hear now the word of God. Very brief, and then we'll unpack. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. May God add his rich blessing to his inspired and errant infallible word. Pray with me. Father, it's no accident we're here this morning, everyone by divine appointment, which means you have something to speak into each heart. Whether student, senior, adult, and all those in between, speak now through this broken vessel and speak only your words from this pulpit. It is only the power of the word of God applied by the spirit of God that conforms us to the image and likeness of the son of God, and that is what we desire most. Father, make it a word of salvation for the unsaved, a word of comfort for those in storm winds, and a word of rest for the tired, weary, and heavy laden. All things to all people that some might be saved. Father, we are not here to scratch the surface of the scriptures. And we're not here to listen to the imagination of a man. But every single person is here. Hungry and thirsty for the revelation of God. Thunder it forth from this pulpit. Give us minds to understand and ears to hear. And hearts that beat for nothing smaller than the Lord Jesus Christ. Come now. Fount of every blessing. Unclutter our minds and unburden our hearts that we might see Jesus in him only. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said. Three things, very simply, in this very short and brief narrative. But you could spend the rest of your life unpacking this. This is it. This This is the gospel right here. And one very simple passion prediction. 
I'm going to look at it under these three headings. Number one, the purpose of it. What's the purpose of it? Number two, who's the person in it? And then finally, number three, what is the prophecy for it? Before we go any further, you just want to pause for a second. It seems strange that Jesus now says, shh, shh, don't say anything. Why? They just gave the greatest confession the world has ever known. It still stands today as the greatest what we call Christological confession. Who is Jesus? The Christological confession as Peter was the spokesperson for the twelve was you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. you got to get that portion from Matthew. So we see Christ, and we see right in the Old Testament, right? Messiah, the Messiah, and the Christ, they're the, the same. They mean the anointed one, the one who was promised, the one who was promised who would come and be the Savior of the world. John the Baptist identified, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. But Jesus knew they didn't fully grasp what they had just confessed. The truth remains, but they didn't fully understand it. So Jesus says, hold on. Don't go tell anyone. There's a lot of reasons for that, but we're just going to look at one right now. And the primary one, they didn't realize what they had said. They didn't know the Christ that they were speaking to. They knew the promise, they they knew from his works and his words, but they didn't understand the depth of what it truly meant. They were still thinking earthly, temporally, physically. They were missing the deep truth. So he says, time out. He must dispel and he must dissipate their earthly desires. He knows what they desire still. You ready? Sit out in the deep water and let our nets down for a catch. And then we'll go to the Lord's table together. Number one, what is the purpose of this statement? Go back to 921. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell anyone. Why? He knows what's in their hearts, even though their lips confessed something different. Putting all four of the evangelists together, we go to John very briefly. What does John say? Take a look. John 6.15. After the people saw the sign, Jesus performed. What was the sign? Same sign we have here. Look here. Don't miss this. It's the same sign. It's the feeding of the 5,000, which turns out to 15 or 20. We have the feeding, right? We have Herod, who's asking the question. He's perplexed. Who is this man that I hear all of these things about? Then right after that question, we have the feeding of the 5,000. Then right after that, we have the question that Jesus asked. Who do they say that I am, and who do you say that I am? Luke does that for a reason. This fits into Luke's view of his picture of who Jesus is, and he doesn't want any material to fall in between. There's more things that happened after the feeding and before this portion. There's more things that happened. You go to Matthew and Mark, but Luke stops. Luke just simply simply puts that feeding in the middle of those two questions. Why? This is it. This is what he wants us to know. This is the identification of the Lord Jesus Christ as the promised anointed one. But Jesus knows that they don't understand. So after the people saw the sign, they began to say, surely this is the prophet. And then here's where the wheels come off. Who is to come into the world, Jesus knowing they intended to come and make him what? King by force. He withdrew. It's not what he came to do. That's not. So what are they looking at? So use the term Messiah and use the term Christ. 
We understand the meaning. Here's what they wanted. They wanted a military Messiah and a commander-in-chief Christ. That's what they wanted. They wanted to restore the Davidic dynasty. They wanted to reestablish the throne of David in Jerusalem. They wanted their, their country, their nation to once again return to national prominence. That's what they wanted. How do we know that's true? It's true all the way throughout the gospel accounts, even after he has crucified, dead, buried, and raised. It's still their view. Take a look at Luke 24, 21 to 20. Excuse me, 20 to 21. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over. These are the two men on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus just shows up, just happens to show up. And he's speaking to them, and they say to him, are you the only one here in Jerusalem that has no idea what's going on? Isn't that a great irony? He's actually the only one that knows what's going on. No one else knows. He's the only one that knows. But they say, you're the only one that has no idea what went on? Well, well, the chief priests and the rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But what's in their minds? We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. He's from the house of David and the tribe of Judah. He, he follows in the line of, of the promised Messiah. He's come. We saw the miracles. We listened to the teaching. We had hoped that now Israel would be restored. They're a conquered nation. They wanted the boot of Rome to be removed. They didn't understand. So let's keep walking through this theme, please. This is the purpose of this passion prediction right then and there. Acts 1, 6 to 8. This is, after, this is not only after the resurrection. Listen, this is just a few moments before he rises up and, and, and ascends into heaven. Two verses later, he's, he, he leaves. Up in the clouds. So he's already taught 40 more days. Now he's leaving. Listen to what they say. They gathered around him and he asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Oh my goodness. They still don't get it. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates. He, just, he doesn't even answer the question. It's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but here's the key. Now, now here he's preaching the gospel, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses where? Everywhere. This kingdom is not restricted to the boundaries of the commonwealth of Israel. My kingdom will have no boundaries. It contains the entire universe. I will have people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. How have you missed this? Where have you been? He's getting ready to go and they still... They'll get it soon on the day of Pentecost. Then they get it. Because you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon... The Holy Spirit's coming. And then you will be what? My witness where? Everywhere. Okay, got it? That's how it works. So he has to correct, yes, I am the Messiah, the Son of the living God, but I'm not the Messiah you think I am. I'm not the Christ you want me to be. I'm not that. I'm not. I want you to see this and how this beautifully comes out of the Old Testament so that we can be clear on how they missed this and, and why, so that you can be firmly established in this truth 
that it was not the commonwealth of Israel. It is the spiritual Israel that has been saved. That is the promise. The spiritual seed. We baptized Jackson. The promise was given to Abraham and his seed. Not the physical descendant. The spiritual descendant of Abraham. Abraham was saved how? Same way you're saved. He believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. He was saved by grace through faith. Same as you. So what did they miss? Watch. The Old Testament now is going to confirm the kingdom of God is not restricted to Israel. Watch this. 1 Samuel 8, 7. The Lord told Samuel, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. (laughs) What does that say to you? God permitted it, but he never proposed it as their promised future. It was never designed to be restricted to Israel. They already had a king. They didn't need David as king. They had a king. They didn't want God as king. They they turned their backs on, on the monarchy. And they said, give us a king like all the other nations. So God gave it to them. But this was never God's plan to restrict his unfolding plan of redemption to the boundaries of Israel. And that's what they wanted. And Jesus said, you're going to get it. You'll figure it out soon enough. Israel desired that kingdom while denying his kingdom. The purpose? Course correction. We all need to be corrected at times. They needed a radical course correction because they're coming toward the end now. They're they're beyond the halfway point of ministry. Two plus years they've been walking with the Lord. We're heading now towards the cross. He's got to make it clear. This is what must happen to Messiah. Let's take a look at number two. Who's the person? This one's real brief, but we have to unpack it. It's here for us to see. Back to 922, and Jesus said the Son of Man. What does that mean? Do you know that Jesus referred, is referred to in the New Testament over 80 times as the Son of Man? There's a dual understanding of this phrase. One is divine and heavenly and eternal, and one is earthly and fleshly. We need to get both of them. So let's take a look at Daniel. This is the messianic identification from the prophet Daniel, Daniel 7. Many of you are familiar with this. 13 and 14. Daniel has this vision, and in it he looked, and before me was one like a son of man. But that's a messianic identification. Why? Because of everything that follows. Listen to what follows. Coming with the clouds of heaven. That's divine. That's messianic. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power and all the nations. Notice that. All the nations worshipped him. Daniel saw the vision. Daniel knew it was for all nations. His dominion is everlasting and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This is the divine one. He's going to come on the clouds. He's leaving on the clouds. That is only reserved for divinity, for God himself. So this is the messianic identification of the Son of Man. But that's not enough. Who did Jesus come to redeem? He didn't come to redeem the fallen angels. He came to redeem fallen man. So he came as a man. He was fully 
man, born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, according to the flesh, out of the house of David and the tribe of Judah. That's true. So John lays it beautifully out, and he puts both together for us, John 1, 1 through 3, and then 14. Ready? Many of you know this by heart. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's divinity. That's the Messiah. That's the Ancient of Days. And he was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. Nothing. So all of it. Now we go to verse 14, and here he is in the flesh. But the word became flesh, and he tabernacled. He set a tent. The word for tent. He tented among us. We have seen the glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, of full of grace and truth. So, who is the person in this divine declaration? It's Jesus. It's the Son of Man. Luke 9, 22. Because Jesus is the only one who is fully God and fully man. I've been asked numerous times, Pastor, can you explain that to me? My answer is very simple, no. I have no idea how to explain that. You know what Spurgeon once said? And he's a lot brighter than I ever will be. The Prince of Preachers from the 1800s. To be able to explain what we call the Chalcedonian Christianity statement of faith. Jesus is fully God and fully man. He would liken it to a gnat trying to drink in all of the ocean for finite mind to explain what this means. We don't know what it, we have. It's the mind of God, but we know this by faith. Jesus is fully God. Jesus is fully man. That we receive by faith. And it must be so for us to be redeemed. So that's as close as we can get to understanding that truth, but we receive that truth. And the Bible makes that truth clear time and time again. So the person in this profound prediction, the Lord Jesus Christ, fully God, took on flesh, fully man. Finally, number three, before we go to the table, what's the prophecy for it? Don't miss this. We're going to walk through this now little by little, this this portion. The first part of the prophecy, this son of man, he must, back to 22, he must suffer many things. I want you to see the word must. You need to understand this. In the Greek, the word day means a binding obligation from the decree of God. Who put Jesus to death? Well, there's a lot of ways we could say that, right? We could certainly say that the religious leaders rejected him. The people turned their back on him. They turned him over to Roman authorities and Roman guard. They, they, they sentenced him to death. They nailed him to the cross. They put a crown of thorns on. But you need to understand what that means. He must suffer many things. Who put Jesus to death? God the Father sent God the Son to that cross. That was the will of God the Father. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. Make no mistake. You're responsible for what you've done. You're responsible for having condemned me. You're responsible for having nailed me. Make no mistake. But no one takes my life from me. 
This was decreed in the eternal counsel of the triune God by the blood of the eternal covenant. Hebrews 13, 20. He must. And we don't even want to get into the suffering. There's so many different ways to go. But Calvin said this, just briefly. The invisible, indescribable suffering that our Lord endured was the wrath of his Father as he hung on that cross from the sixth to the ninth hour when he cried, my God, my God, why? Know what the answer is. You and you and you, that's why. God forsook his son for you. That's the deep... I'm not minimizing crucifixion, but thousands upon thousands were crucified. So was Jesus. That's bad, but nothing even begins to compare between the wrath of God, the cup that he drank when he hung on that cross. He who knew no sin became sin for us. That's the depth of his suffering. And Calvin beautifully Frame that for us. It is indescribable, incomprehensible, this invisible pain. We focus. Remember the movie The Passion? People came out weeping, weeping, crying out to Jesus, and two weeks later, back to doing what they were doing. Some. Why? Moved by the physical pain, and I'm not minimizing the physical pain, but that was nothing. Thousands of men endured physical pain like that and worse. It was the wrath of God that was poured out on his son. An infinite wrath that we can't even begin to comprehend. That he took so that we will never have to. You know when he said, my God, my God, why? Has thou forsaken? You will never, ever, ever, ever say that. If you're in Christ. Ever. Ever. He's not going to forsake twice, only once. Penalty has been paid. When Jesus said it is finished, he meant what he said. Is it finished for you? Moving on. Now the Son of Man must suffer, and then moving on, he must be rejected. Now when you see the phrase elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, just know that that means Sanhedrin. That's the ruling religious leaders of the day. So that's just theological shorthand for the Sanhedrin. Psalm 118, 22 to 23 lays this out, a beautiful messianic prophecy that points us to the future. Prophecy points us to the future. Psalm 118, check it out. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. It is marvelous in our eyes. All of this is the Lord's will. This is the Lord's will to put him to death. The crush, we'll see that in just a moment. Moving on, he gets to the final point, and you know what happens in, in the way the other evangelists frame this out. Peter steps in and says, no, Lord, no, no. Far be it from me that you shall ever, what? Be killed. Look at it. And he must be killed. 922. This is what freaked Peter out. He said, no. no. I just confessed that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What are you saying? I don't understand. I know you don't. That's the whole point. I know you don't understand. I'm not the kind of Messiah that you think I am. I'm coming back for that. 
but not now. If I establish the throne of David, if I reestablish the Davidic throne, the kingdom of David in Jerusalem, you will still be dead in your sins. No one will get saved. The price for sin must be paid. There must be atonement for the sin. Why must Jesus be killed? I want to show you how this fits together. This is how we teach our students. One word from one God to one world. Yes. Why? Because the innocent dying for the guilty is established in Eden. Did you know that? The innocent dying for the guilty is established in Eden. Take a look. Genesis 3.21. I promise you I'm not making this up. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Where do you think he got those garments from? Something had to die. They took fig leaves to try to cover themselves. We read that in in verses 8 and 9. They try to cover themselves and run and hide from God. So God makes that first proto-evangelion promise in 315, speaking to the serpent, her seed will crush your head. But he realizes what they've done isn't going to work. So now he's going to give them a picture, an object lesson and a picture pointing to a true atonement that's going to come. And it's going to come through the blood of the true lamb. We don't know if a sheep was sacrificed, but it seems to suggest that it was. But whatever it was, it's the first time death enters into the biblical narrative. For the wages of sin is? Okay. A lot of people have lots of other views about in the beginning. I read it as it reads. That's I'm a simple man. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and just run through the narrative. I believe Adam and Eve to be real people. So did Paul. Gospels make that clear. They were the, they, they, Adam was the federal head, the representative of all mankind. So this is it. This is the first death. The blood is shed, and it's a picture of what's coming. Okay? Clearly, this is a picture. How do we know? Go to Leviticus 17.11. For the life of the creature is where? In the blood. And I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. And then here we go to Isaiah. 700 years. You would think Isaiah was standing on the hill Golgotha as an eyewitness. Listen to these words. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Now, how would you possibly dream this up? But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. There was no crucifixion then. Certainly there was, had none of that in Israel. How would you die in Israel if you were condemned to death? You were stoned. Stoning was the way you would be put to death. What is this piercing thing? It's as if Isaiah is standing there, watching it as an eye. He's giving an eyewitness account, and he is. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's as if he's standing there, pierced. Psalm 22, pierced for our transgressions. Crucifixion. And now by the time Jesus is ready for death, crucifixion has been what? Perfected. The Romans were the best. They had perfected the, 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 the cruelest instrument of death known to man was crucifixion at that time. They had perfected it. Relig- ever wonder what religious leaders sought to stone him? 
Why couldn't they stone him? It wasn't the way he was going to die. He's going to be crucified. They couldn't stone him. God's restraint. So you read those passages, and all of a sudden he kind of disappeared. What? How? It was according to God's plan. Do you understand what that means? God is in control of everything that's happening right now in your life. Everything. Everything. Every single aspect of your life, God has control over. Nothing's caught him by surprise. Nothing's going to happen to you that doesn't first pass through his nail-scarred hands. Got it? Nothing. And if that's the truth, and he has sent it for two reasons. What are those two reasons? Your good and his glory. Don't miss it. And I'm not minimizing pain. I deal with it every week. Some really bad stuff. But God is in control. No one else. Isaiah. Finish the picture. Yet, listen, don't miss verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. It was the Lord's will. Nobody took his life. And then finally, just a couple comments. We'll come back to this later to finish that passage in 22. And on the what day? Third day. Be raised to life. Take a look at Genesis 22.4. I'm just going to show you a couple things. Listen, when we're looking at Scripture, sometimes we have to look according to shadows. We look according to types. We look according to prophecies. We look according to a number of different things, right? To see the whole picture of what God wants us to understand. We look at it from a literal aspect. We see it from a symbolic aspect. We put all of this together. But there's obviously something going on here on the third day. There's something powerful on the third day. So just I'm going to just a couple things. We'll get to Jonah later because we actually preach about Jonah in chapter 11. So we leave him alone for a few weeks, maybe months. I don't know. But take a look at 22.4 in Genesis. And notice a couple things. On the third day, okay, so they're walking three days. Three days in the mind of Abraham. Abraham knows what God has commanded him to do, right? Sacrifice his son. So for three days, Isaac is what? Dead. In the mind of who? His father. But now it's the third day, and Abraham does what? He looked up. Don't, don't miss that phrase. You're going to see it again. You're going to see it twice. When you see something once, take notice. When you see it twice, stand up. Circle it, start, and take a look at it. Abraham looked up and saw in the place in the distance. Isaac spoke, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself, Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. Abraham knew. Abraham looked up and there and looked up again. He's looking where? He's looking off into the distance. He sees the promise he knows that even if he slays his son, that God has the power to raise him from the dead. He believed God. He knows who God is. He knows the promises of God. So he looks up again. Check this out. And there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. Many, many, many years later, there was another son who was in that same place, but there was no ram caught in the thicket to save him. His father actually put him to death. God the Father slayed God the Son. For whom? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all of you who will receive him by grace through faith. First Kings 17, 21. I'm just going to throw it out just for fun. Why three? The wise receive instruction. Watch this. Who was Jesus compared to in the Old Testament? 
every great prophet, priest, and king. So here now, Elijah. Then Elijah stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out, Lord God, let this boy's life return to him. Why three times? Well, who's the boy? Maybe we, we unpacked it last week. He's, he's the son of the widow. Okay, and Jesus in the New Testament revives the son of the widow. And Jesus is the greater Elijah. So you see these things fitting together that are instructing you that God is orchestrating all things for the fulfillment and accomplishment of his unfolding plan of redemption. That doesn't take away the fact that it was a literal three times. Three times he stretched himself. Why? Why not two? Why not ten? Why three? It's instructive. Don't miss it. And then one final one. John 2.1, on the third day. We, we, we acknowledge this is three days after the preceding event. Three days. And there are a lot of scholarship counting which event and which three days. Forget that for a moment. Don't you have to ask the question, what difference does it make to you 2,000 years later that on the third day a wedding took place? Well, when you understand the whole the whole picture of the wedding and what actually happened at the wedding. And it wasn't just that Jesus turned water into wine so you could drink all the wine you wanted. That wasn't it. Don't do that. People tell me that. They'll come, oh, you know, the first miracle was turning water into wine. I know, but put it down a little bit. Put it down. Don't keep drinking it. It doesn't give you freedom. Just keep drinking it. But there's, there's something going on. This is a picture of something that's coming on. The first, the first miracle happens at a wedding for a reason. Why? Your wedding day is coming. Now, you may be married now, today, but that, that's, that's just a picture of what's coming. Okay, we will not be given unto each other in marriage in heaven. Why? We have a bridegroom who's waiting for us. His name is Jesus. Okay, here's the close. Watch. So, so you, have to, you have to come out of that wedding, and you've got to go to Revelation. Here's the close. And we'll be back to these predictions later. We'll do more later. Revelation 19, 7 to 9, the eschatological wedding banquet. This is it. This is your promise. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come. You've been, the wedding has come. Do you see how all this fits? On the third day, there's a wedding in Cana. It's pointing you to something. And his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen, stands for the righteousness, the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, here it is, write this, blessed are those who are invited. Oh, don't miss that. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. Blessed are those who are invited. You are all invited right now by grace through faith, to the wedding, to the marriage, to the bridegroom. If you have never surrendered control of your life to Christ, this moment is a moment of invitation to all who have been invited. You have heard the truth. Let that truth set you free by surrendering control of your life to Christ. You feel the prompting of the Holy Spirit. It's not a work of man. It's not a man-centered effort to come to Christ. It's a raising of the death, death, dead to life by the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus, with outstretched arms and nail-scarred hands, says, Come, 
Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Will you come by grace through faith and transfer your trust to Christ alone? That's the gospel. You can give up all of the good works and all of your church attendance and all of the giving of your time, talent, and treasure. Do all of those things, but none of that will save you. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Nail-scarred hands and opened arms invite you now to come. If you've never prayed this before, pray with me now, and all the believers pray with one accord. Father, right now, if anyone in this place or by way of the internet has never surrendered control to Christ, may they, by the power of the Holy Spirit, pray these words now. Oh, God, I've heard the truth, and I know that truth has come to set me free. I understand that I am a sinner, and I am in need of a Savior, and I cannot save myself. But, oh, God, I don't have to anymore. I can give up my self-salvation project and I can come to Christ. I can trust in Christ alone. I can receive the invitation to the marriage banquet with the Lamb. Oh God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And know that on this day and forevermore, nothing will ever separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That is the promise of the gospel. And for all those who have been walking, some for many, many, many years, continue to walk by grace, by faith, not by sight, trusting in Christ, regardless of what happens, trusting in Christ as the author and perfecter of your faith. And this we ask in Jesus' precious name and all God's people said, Okay, we're going to the table. We're going to have the Lord's Supper. But before we do that, Before we fence the table, we set it apart. There's something that we would like to do as a family of faith now. We we added that uh, to our Lord's Supper tradition. So I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask you a question in just a moment, but then I'm going to also ask you to stand. And you'll see up on the screens if you're not quite familiar with the great confession of faith. But I'm going to ask you this question and then ask you to stand. And you can also look at the screens. And we're going to recite this together. Question before the house. Christian, what do you believe? Rise, and let us say the Apostles' Creed together. Ready? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And he will come to judge the living and the dead.